hey, this is the Substack team. We just want to let you know your subscription to Tangle is renewing in five days. Like you can change your subscription methods here. And it's like a link to their account. And it's basically an invitation to unsubscribe. And I didn't turn this thing on. I, you know, it's just Substack doing their standard due diligence to not sneak charge people. But I wrote to them, you know, pissed off saying like, hey, first of all, don't contact my readers without my permission. I didn't know this email was going out. And second of all, if it's going to go out, I want to be in control of what it says, you know. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. Saul Isaac is a politics reporter who grew up in suburban Pennsylvania and has lived and reported all over the world. He's written for Daily Mail, Huffington Post, New York Daily News, Vox, and many others. But these days, he runs a Substack newsletter called Tangle. I'm a subscriber. It's an independent, ad-free, nonpartisan political newsletter that he distributes on Substack, which is a newsletter distribution platform that's all the rage right now with built-in e-commerce that you can use to essentially build an audience and generate income. Uh, Saul, welcome to the uh, Earn Media Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, and I have to apologize to you because I set you up for failure here. I'm looking at my Zoom screen and I have my own first and last name backwards here as Saul Isaac, which is why you're calling me Saul Isaac. But my name's actually Isaac Saul. And this happens literally everywhere I go because I have two first and last names, which makes life really difficult. Well, I have a better story for you. So on my sister podcast, which is that this is the earned media podcast, we talk about digital PR. And then we have a digital marketing podcast called the B2B lead gen podcast. I recently had the CEO of Yoast, which is the number one SEO plugin for WordPress on, and she's Dutch. And her name is Marika. And by the end of the episode, I was Marika. I was hacking it up. <laughs> so I owe her a, a you know, big apology for that. At least I can pronounce your name. Yeah. So um, <laughs> Isaac Saul, welcome to the uh, Earn Media Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super stoked to be here and uh, really excited to talk about some of the stuff that's happening in the media world right now. Awesome. Awesome. So today, in this episode, the state of political journalism, finding an audience without a network backbone, and exploding media technology platforms in three acts with our guest, Isaac Saul. Stay with us. Act one. During the Trump administration, every day was a hard news day, with something unprecedented to report daily. Ratings were up across the board for all the cable news networks, but that's no longer the case, right? Regardless of your politics, I think it's fair to say that the Biden administration is much more predictable and much more well-behaved. We're here with Isaac Saul, who founded and runs a growing nonpartisan political newsletter on Substack called Tangle. And uh, first question, Isaac, um, I, I, I imagine that launching a political newsletter during the Trump administration was a particularly smart move. Yeah, was it? I mean, did, yeah, did it help? Yeah, yes, I, I think it helped tremendously. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there are two things happening. One is there is a strong growing distrust for the mainstream media, uh, you know, 
mostly when people talk about that, they talk about how that exists on the right. My experience interacting with readers and promoting my own work is that that distrust also exists on the left uh, for, for different reasons. And maybe people are less outspoken about it. But um, yeah, I mean, there was no shortage of anything to write about. And the engagement from readers leading up to the election was unbelievable. I mean, I, I started my newsletter in August of 2019. So right as the Democratic primaries were really starting to heat up and being in that being in that space and that timing of it meant that the people who were coming in to read were really dialed in every day. Um, and I've seen that in the metrics of the newsletter. I mean, up until January, I, I would see 50 to 60% open rates on every newsletter I sent with a, you know, an audience of nearly 20,000 people. And that has come down pretty steadily up till now, um, maybe, you know, six to 10 percentage points since the election uh, or since the inauguration, really, which I think is reflective of the fact that some people are sort of stepping back a little bit right now with the, with the Biden administration in office. When you were working at the Daily Mail and HuffPo and New York Daily News and Vox, was politics always your beat? Yeah, so I've actually, uh, as a full-time reporter, HuffPost was the only of those places that I've worked for. The others were freelancing and, you know, writing regularly, but they, yeah, always politics. Um, in the very beginning of my career, I was sort of just like a viral news writer try trying to drive traffic. Uh, but typically, yeah, national politics has been my beat. I, I've carved out a special interest, I think, in a few specific areas like policing and immigration are things that I tend to write about a little bit more than other stuff. But now with Tangle, I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it's a national politics newsletter and I sort of decide what I'm going to write about based on what is dominating the opinion pages of, you know, the most read websites and newspapers in the country. So, I go where the conversation's going and I think as a result have like a, a pretty broad view and perspective of what's happening in the country. I definitely feel more comfortable in certain places than others, but national politics for sure is, is my beat. So tell us about Tangle. What is it? Sure. So T Tangle is a daily newsletter. I send it out Monday through Thursday to free subscribers. Anybody who wants to try it can sign up and get four days a week, totally free. And the concept of the newsletter is really simple. You're gonna get views from across the political spectrum on whatever the big story of the day is. So the format of the newsletter is that I will lead off with what DC is talking about. And that's sort of what I was just referencing. What, what's the big buzz about? What's the chatter about? So we're chatting today, it's Wednesday, April 21st. And the big news is obviously the verdict in the Derek Chauvin case. So that was what the newsletter was about. And then after that section, that's sort of just the main facts. I do a roundup of maybe two or three columns from conservative writers. So it'll say what the right is saying, and then it'll be snippets of perspectives, arguments being crafted by, you know, dominant thinkers in the conservative world. And then what the left is saying. So same thing, just a mirror image of that sort of a collection of all these opinions that are being written by people with lefty politics. And then my take, which is 
my sort of reaction and reflection to the arguments and where I kind of land. If I take a position, I take it. If I don't, I just sort of lay out what I'm seeing and try and add some context to the arguments that are there. And then uh, th th that's really the meat. That's the heart of the newsletter. That's what people sign up for. Um, I also answer a reader question in every newsletter, do a story that matters, which is kind of like what's fallen under the radar. What's, what's a really important story that has been, you know, overlooked because of whatever everybody's chattering about. That's usually education, addiction, you know, healthcare, stuff that's like really impacting people every day. And then a numbers section. And then the last thing in the newsletter is a good news story. Uh, a have a nice day section. That's just like something a little positive to, to wash it all down. Wow, that's a huge amount of content to do every day. Tell us about your editorial production schedule. Yeah, so uh, I write about three to 4,000 words every day, and I've been doing that for almost two years. Um, I work pretty much nonstop. Uh, I wake up at you know five or six in the morning every day and basically roll out of bed into my office chair and start reading and writing. And I work right up until the bell, I mean, six hours straight until the newsletter goes out at noon Eastern, uh, which is sort of another little quirk of the newsletter. A lot of people, a lot of news organizations do morning newsletters. I sort of own the lunch hour. That's my thing. I believe that uh, a lot of the, the morning stuff misses some of the most interesting commentary. And I like seeing how it sort of shakes out and what the discussion is throughout the morning, because I'm sort of trying to give people a holistic view of what's going on. And uh, I, I think typically at 6 a.m. we don't really have a clear view. Um, and yeah, and then I send the newsletter out and then right at 12, I start thinking about what I'm going to do the next day. So, you know, from 12 till the end of the day, five or six o'clock, um, I'm preparing and working and researching on the next newsletter on, you know, good days when I, when I sort of have a couple of days in advance lined up, I'll be working ahead of schedule, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, you know, eight to 10 hours probably spent on each newsletter. Um, I have a research assistant, an intern. I have a two or three editors who are, you know, give me an hour or two every morning of their time. One of them's a copy editor. One of them is my father, who is a very good writer and basically just reads through the newsletter and corrects my grammar. And then the other one is basically a close friend who's one of the smartest people I know. And he reads the newsletter and tries to point out where he thinks my arguments are, are basically not up to snuff. Um, so I get like the copy edit, the, the general edit, and then like the, the logical punch holes in my argument part from a friend. Uh, and I sort of adjust for the last couple hours of the newsletter. And then I send it out right at noon. But you're not worried about sequencing? Like you don't want to go to your dad last and make sure that any changes that get made, he catches or? It's interesting you say that. Um, I What usually happens is I write all of this in Substack, which is the platform I use. Then I copy and paste it into a Google Doc. And then I share it with all three of them at once, uh, which is really fun to be, you know, four of us in the document. Everybody's leaving comments. There's edits. I'm accepting. We're changing it. We're moving stuff around. And it's very collaborative and it's sort of, it's this kind of two or three hours where the base newsletter is there and then we're all sort of building it and, and sort of massaging it as a team, um, which is pretty fun. Have you ever had any difficulties with Substack losing your copy because it's a web-based platform? 
No, Substack's great. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of controversy and, you know, questions about what the best newsletter platforms are and different things around, you know, whether Substack is right for people. I personally have had a fantastic experience on Substack. Um, it auto saves basically every time you make a change in the newsletter. So it's pretty hard to lose anything unless your internet's down and you don't notice, which has happened to me before. Uh, but no, usually the, that process is, is pretty easy. And, and I, I have used a lot of different backends in my time as a writer and theirs is very slick, very easy to use. And um, yeah, the, the auto save feature is, is hot. I mean, every, every time you type a letter, it, it saves it. So that, that's a pretty nice thing to have. I do want to talk more about technology, um, but but first, tell me. I want to talk about the inner, uh, the editorial personality of Tangle. If Tangle was a person, what kind of person would you be? It's an interesting question. I don't think I've answered that question before. Uh, I would say empathetic is probably like the the number one. I mean, I I m my personality is that I have a, a deep empathy for people from across the political spectrum. I believe politics is informed by people's experiences they've had in their lives. And, uh, you know, I, I think what people have gone through and what they've seen with their own two eyes will always be more influential to them than data or information or reality or fact checks. N none of that stuff can, can hold a candle to what people experience in their day-to-day -day lives. And so I try to write from a place of empathy. I grew up in a very politically diverse place with a lot of people who are friends of mine and family, close people to me that I love who have politics across the spectrum. And I was in part inspired to start Tangle because I saw those people begin to hate each other when I didn't think they had to. And um, so I think it, it's, it's definitely rooted in empathy uh, open-mindedness and a political incongruency, I like to say. I mean, I, my people, the, the, the question I get from readers most often is what are your politics? Because I'm featuring a lot of other people's writing. So everybody always wants to know, are you a liberal? You're a conservative. And, you know, it's sort of a cop out, but it's also very true that my answer is I'm politically incongruent. It depends what the issue is. You know, I, I don't, I have no interest in saying I'm a liberal or a conservative. I have no loyalty to the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. I think, you know, conservative values are sometimes useful. I think liberal values are sometimes useful. You know, I have feelings about what politicians I think are doing better work than others. And I express those openly. That's like, you know, my take in the newsletter is my take. I try and be honest about what my biases are. So yeah, I mean, I would say empathetic, open-minded and transparent, I mean, radically transparent. That is, I, I am trying to also solve for the trust and media issues. So for instance, you know, I keep a running tally of every correction that I make in the newsletter. So if I publish something that's an error in the newsletter, somebody writes in and says, hey, you said, you know, 20 million people are unemployed. Actually, it's 14 million. The next day I will at the top of the newsletter, not in like a bottom footnote. The very first thing you'll see in the newsletter is a correction. I'll explain the error. I'll explain exactly how it happened in the editing process. 
And then I'll say, you know, this was the 42nd Tango correction in its 200 week history. And we track corrections in an effort to create transparency with our readers. And that was something I was very scared to do, but people really love it. It's one of the most popular and well-received parts of the newsletter. Um, I also share reader feedback pretty much every day. So if you write in and criticize something I wrote or you know how I formulated a sentence in the newsletter, you'll be one of many people who do that, but there's a chance that I will feature your feedback in the next day's newsletter. So I try and share kind of dissenting opinions every day, just because, you know, I'm one person and I think there are a lot of views and perspectives out there and, and I don't have a, I, I don't own the truth, you know? You know, we're in this environment where these um, social media algorithms show you more of the same and put you in this kind of bubble filter and sort of reinforce your existing beliefs rather than challenging them. And I wonder what that's meant for you because you're sort of trying to toe the middle of the aisle, but you know, the algorithms don't work that way. The algorithms either put you on the right or the left. So do you have a sense of how that's worked out for you? Yeah, uh, so I don't get much of any traffic from Facebook or Twitter uh, or any place like that. Uh, it does not work well for me and my, my goal and my perspective on what Tangle is doing is that I am taking people out of their bubbles and out of their echo chambers. Um, I am in part trying to break that cycle and the fact that most people I know log onto social media and they get nothing but views and tweets and posts that reinforce their political beliefs. So I don't rely on Facebook for traffic. I don't rely on Twitter for traffic. I rely entirely on word of mouth. I've grown Tangle from 50 subscribers to 21,000 daily readers in less than two years by asking people to send it to their friends who they think would like it. And, you know, I've had occasional tweets that have gone viral or posts that have caught fire, but uh, it's, it's very rare because of the format of the newsletter and because of you know, what I'm trying to do. I, I don't want to participate in that. I think it's extremely toxic. I think it's part of why the media ecosystem and the discourse in our country is broken right now. So I am, I am doing everything I can to not be incentivized by those algorithms because I, I think they're a big part of the problem. Isaac, I recently interviewed atmospheric scientist, Michael Mann, PhD. He's the guy who pretty much woke the world up to the relationship between carbon emissions and climate change. And um, you know, after I published that issue, uh, that episode on my blog, I had a full frontal assault from the fossil fuel industry, from you know, their PR people and their industry front groups. I mean, it was a clearly an assault against science with all sorts of information. And uh, my feeds were quickly populated with all sorts of ridiculous and threatening comments right? But when I look at your comment fields under your stories, they're pretty tame, right? So how do you keep your comment uh, kiosk from attracting, you know, lies and smears? Uh, well, first of all, Michael Mann is a really interesting, smart guy. I've had the privilege of interviewing him myself. We go back. Um, so that's really cool that you spent some time with him. He's, uh, I think he's, you know, he's doing honest work and I appreciate a lot of this stuff and a lot of the science he's putting out there. Uh, the short answer is that you can't comment on my 
newsletters unless you're a paying subscriber. The comment section is locked to the public. So it's, it's really the people who are invested in what the newsletter's mission is and invested in being exposed to views that they might not agree with who are allowed to comment. And that is a really, really effective way to sort of filter out the trolls and the people who are just coming in there to, you know, be divisive. It's, it's not foolproof. Um, You know, I have plenty of readers who are paying readers who I am not fans of how they sort of handle themselves in the online discourse, but regardless of their political beliefs, I think that they respect me enough to be mostly respectful in the comments. And I have never to this day had to ban anyone or delete any comments or block anything because, you know, the nobody's paying 50 bucks a year just to troll on the, the comments of a newsletter. If they're paying, it's because they're genuinely interested in the content. And most people who are doing that are, you know, fairly open-minded and even keeled and they're interested in having a real discourse and learning something. They, they want to be challenged and be exposed to views they might not agree with. We're talking to Isaac Saul. He is the founder of Tangle. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the competitive media landscape and how it's changing. Stay with us. Act two. When it comes to physical news media products like newspapers and magazines, the internet eviscerated that barrier to entry. Buying ink by the barrel is no longer a competitive advantage for media companies. The internet literally erased the moat mainstream print news media enjoyed and the growth of over-the-top TV and streaming video on demand could further marginalize cable news for young audiences who are already off the, who have already cut the cord. Um, our guest is Isaac Saul. He is the founder of the nonpartisan news political newsletter he runs on Substack called Tangle. Um, Saul, why did you decide? I mean, you, you, you've written for Daily Mail. You've written for HuffPo. You've written for big established media brands. Why did you decide to fly solo and publish your own newsletter? Really simple. This, this one was really straightforward for me um, because I learned pretty early on that people would take my reporting or my writing seriously, but based solely on where I was publishing it and not what I was writing. So if I put up a column in the Huffington Post, that column was not going to be read or taken seriously by anyone with center or right of center political views. Uh, If I wrote something for the Independent Journal Review or got interviewed on Fox News, there was nobody in the liberal world, nobody left of center who was going to take what I wrote seriously or, you know, care enough to examine it with an open mind. And I found that out the hard way. My first job in news, my first journalism job was at Huffington Post. And I did not go work for the Huffington Post as a 22 year old because I was like a diehard, you know, bleeding heart liberal. It was because I got a job there and getting a job at a media organization is really hard. And I applied to 70 media organizations and I got one job. And so I took it. And when I left Huffington Post and started writing for other places, I quickly saw that, you know, in the comments section of the articles and the responses to my tweets, people would just say, oh, this guy worked at HuffPost, that liberal rag. He's just, you know, he's just another lib. And 
uh, that tag stuck with me. It stuck with me to this day. Um, and so I got really tired of and frustrated with being pegged to the institutions or the brands that I was writing for, because I didn't want to be represented by them. I wanted to, I wanted my writing and my arguments to, to stand on their own. So that was first and foremost, um, the, the reason that I chose Substack and newsletters and, and how it happened was more about another symptom of the media ecosystem, which is that I was working at a company called A+, a sort of solutions-oriented media outlet where we kind of wrote some feel-good, positive stories about things that were working. And I was on the politics beat there. And we were bought by Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment, who basically turned the the news website into a video shop. Um, we did like the pivot to video with Facebook and a lot of the other um, a lot of the other players in the media. And so I sort of had the cord cut on my writing and my political reporting, and I didn't have an outlet. I was writing video scripts instead of writing articles and columns and doing political reporting that I wanted to do. And so I was looking for a place to do my writing. So I started Tangle and started on Substack while I had a full-time job as an editor. And I, it was in the beginning, it was sort of like a side project that I was experimenting with, but I chose Substack instead of freelancing or anything else because I wanted that independence. I wanted it to just be, to be mine. So, um, I recently interviewed uh, Tonya Reese, executive director at Edelman, about the 2021 Trust Barometer Report, which, uh, if you're aware of it, it tracks um, trust in journalism and all sorts of sources for media elites, people who consume a lot of media. And that's a, that's a shrinking audience, media elites. And media, uh, one of the things they talk about is people who have good media hygiene. And they describe that as people who look at multiple sources and then make their own opinion based on, you know, having consulted the left and the right and the center. Uh, some people will go to the all kinds media website to sort of figure out who's left, right and center and then listen to a few and, and make up their mind. Um, but those with old school media literacy, like, you know, myself from the newspaper days, you know, there, there was always a very hard difference between opinion and, and news. Like it was actually a separate section in the newspaper with a separate staff reporting to a separate editor. And, you know, now you think about cable, cable news, you know, you've got the same anchors and personalities reading the news and delivering opinion from the same desk with really no disclosure at all. And I wonder if you think, you know, figuring that out and disclosing opinion versus news is even possible. And if it is, is it a problem that can be fixed? It's really, it's tough and it's a huge issue. I mean, media literacy generally is a big problem in the country. I think, you know, even, even at the paper of record at the New York Times, you know, they have blurred the lines between news and opinion by having analysis pieces, which I read and often think, I don't know if this is, this isn't a news story. This is an opinion piece that's being, you know, sort of pegged to the news team by being falling under this sort of in-between category of analysis. And I, as a journalist, sometimes struggle to understand, you know, where mainstream news outlets are drawing that line. And so I can't imagine just being a casual media consumer who's trying to do that. 
Um, and I, I, you know, my belief is that the only way to fix it is to sort of have that radical transparency, which is what I'm trying to do with Tangle. And, and that's saying explicitly, these are like, this is news and this is not. And, you know, obviously these papers and these websites, you know, they're labeling stuff opinion or they're labeling it news, but you know, they're, you look at like the home pages of these news outlets online and it's hard to tell sometimes. I mean, it's hard to tell what headlines are being drawn as fact and what headlines are being drawn as opinion. Um, the analysis stuff or the media commentary is sort of like this weird in between space that I don't really understand. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, a, I think it's a huge challenge. I think, there's a, a crisis right now in, of trust in media. And, you know, I think the New York Times or the Washington Post, the fact that they've been pegged as left-leaning is uh, bo both dangerous and illustrative of the fact that their, their news teams have sort of lost the, lost the plot a little bit. And at the same time, you know, I look at the Wall Street Journal, which the the news team at the wall street journal i think does some of the best reporting in the country i i wake up and the first paper i open in the morning is the wall street journal um and i think their hard news section is still doing incredibly balanced reporting but the opinion section is so far right and you know plays into so much of the culture war stuff that that you can't really find a honest liberal or progressive who reads the wall street journal anymore, even though they're choosing to cover a lot of stories that I think are really important. So it's, it's not just that it blurs the line between opinion and news. It's also that the opinion sections turn away potential readers for the news sections, which I think is, is really dangerous and not good. I mean, it just contributes to the, the siloing of views and perspectives that we have already. Dan, where, do, where does most of your traffic come from? How do you get subscribers? Uh, I would say most of my traffic comes from promoting the newsletter on Twitter. Um, I, I have, you know, 30,000 followers or something on Twitter. So a modest but strong following where if I tweet something that catches fire, I can get like a new audience and then peg a promotion to the newsletter to that. But honestly, uh I mean, that, that's like outside of Tangle. That's where the most traffic comes from. But it's really, I ask readers to share the newsletter. I mean, if I look at my, my stats in Substack's back end, it'll say like direct is the biggest traffic driver, which means it's people being forwarded the newsletter and then clicking into Tangle and going straight to the website, something Maybe. like that. Yeah, Maybe. it's it's a hard thing to track, yeah. um, and and Substack stats on that stuff are not the best, and so I I will say like I'm definitely shooting blind a little bit, but um, I can see for sure that people are sharing. Like I can see when people press the share button in the newsletter and post sure. something on social media or share it and email it to people, and that is still the number one way that I get new subscribers is just through that word of mouth. Do you get pitched by PR people? Sometimes, and I think, I don't know if that's because they think they're gonna get into Tangle as much as 
that's just because my emails are on so many lists from being a reporter um, that, that I'm just getting people popping into my, my inbox. Uh, but yeah, I, I'll get pitches most commonly for people who um, want to get something in, in the have a nice day section, something like that. They, you know, their company did something really good and they think, Hey, you, you know, your subscribers might be interested in this feel good story. That's probably like the most, the most common thing I hear. Years ago, I interviewed Danny Levy, who founded Daily Candy. That was an email subscription newsletter she sold to Comcast for $125 million. And the Hustle newsletter has an audience of 1.5 million. Uh, what are your goals for Tangle? It's a good question. Uh, the Hustle actually promoted Tangle, which was awesome. Um, I, I shot them a cold call email and just said, hey, I think your readers would dig this. And their content team subscribed and read the newsletter for a week. And then they just promoted it. They gave us a shout out and Tangle totally free. I mean, I know people pay thousands of dollars for a placement in there. So I was really excited about that. And I respect what they're doing a lot. I think the hustle is, you know, aside from the morning brew, it's sort of like the, the creme de la creme of, of newsletters. First of all, my goal was to create a, a lucrative journalism career for myself because um, I don't think it's possible in a lot of ways to make good money in media anymore, unless you are, you know, the top dog at, at the Washington Post and the New York Times or Fox News or MSNBC or whatever, or an anchor, which I have no interest in being. And uh, I've done that. I've, you know, I'm, I make more off my newsletter than I do at any job I've ever gotten in the, in the media world before. So that was a goal that I was really excited to accomplish. And, you know, I, I think my dream world, you know, five, 10 years from now is that I am in that upper hundreds of thousands, close to a million readers every day, free readers who are taking in a diverse set of views and opinions. Um, you know, if I could, if I could scale what I have now to 20,000 paying subscribers and be making, you know, high six figures, seven low seven figures a year, I could hire uh, uh, and build out a team with diverse ideological backgrounds, five or six people, you know, what I would want, what my dream would be to have a small, really well-paid team with no red tape that's just working together every day to produce like a, a really, really good, strong piece of content every morning that people are gonna wanna read and be excited to read. Um, I have just started to build out a podcast. I have about nine episodes. Um, so that's, that's been a really fun project for me. I'm just interviewing guests who I think are interesting in the political world now, but I'm going to expand that into readings of the newsletter every day. So we're going to get into the audio world more and maybe create a different revenue stream that way. And then, um, I'm looking at YouTube, which is still the most popular social media quote unquote network. I mean, it's the most popular place people get news and information from. And I think, uh, creating videos on YouTube in the Tangle format would be something people really enjoy, where it's a quick five-minute breakdown of an issue with a view from the left and a view from the right, and then my perspective. Um, so yeah, I, I have plans to expand this into different media platforms. Um, I have a small team now that I'm hoping to take care of and sort of grow with them. 
you know, I do a ton of work to produce this daily newsletter and I, I leave a lot on the table by not repurposing the content that I already have. That's, that's like a big goal of mine for 2021 is, you know, I have 4,000 words, 3,000 words of writing every day that just exists as a newsletter that I could cut up and condense and turn into a podcast. I could turn it into a, a YouTube video. I could do all these other things with it. Uh, and I, I'm leaving a lot on the table in that respect. So um, I think the the heart of it will always be the newsletter, but I'd love to get my toes wet in some of those other platforms. More with Isaac Saul about the emerging digital media platform space after this. Stay with us. Act three, whose audience is it anyways? Used to be news media outlets used print publications terrestrial broadcast signals and distribution as a barrier to entry against competitors. Now, technology has spawned a new breed of digital first companies and the surviving incumbents were essentially forced to pivot just to stay alive. So now we've got this new breed of digital media platform players uh, and they basically provide infrastructure to content creators and in your case, you know, journalists slash content creators who want to hang a shingle and, and launch their own masthead, so to speak. Um, Isaac Saul founded and runs the nonpartisan news ad-free political newsletter, Tangle. You could have used MailChimp, Constant Contact, or ConvertKit to power your newsletter. Why'd you go with Substack? Yeah, uh, that's a big question in the newsletter space right now. I, my, my thought process was this, I'm good at a few things. I'm really good at writing. I'm really good at interviewing people. I'm really good at research. I, you know, those, those are my strengths and I wanted to lean into my strengths. I have very low technical capabilities and excuse me, I had pretty much no experience in the newsletter space besides existing at in, in newsrooms where other people were sending newsletters and being a newsletter consumer. So I had a good idea and one set of skills to execute that idea, which was kind of the writing, interviewing, research skills. And Substack covered everything else for me. I mean, it first of all, gave me a platform to use that I didn't have to build. It was punch and play. I mean, I, you know, it was so intuitive for me to just click new post and type a few things in and then, you know, blast out an email to my subscribers. That was really easy. Two was that it had a built-in audience. People were already on the Substack website to read other newsletter creators. And so there was a discover page. I was sharing the platform with other people. So it was easier for people to kind of stumble across my work there than it might've been if I just started my own blog. Um, and three was that I believed in the model. I mean, I, I, they are, were and are, I think, distinguishing themselves by doing what they sort of call premium newsletter creation. You know, it's, they, they do not, they, they basically dissuade people from having ads in their newsletter and push people to only do the subscriber model. And what I wanted was to be supported and independent in a way where I had no, absolutely no ties to investors, had no pressure to create traffic, didn't have advertisers to please. I wanted to be subscriber supported. And Substack was just built for that from top to bottom. It's 
totally free to use when you build your audience. So I wrote Tangle every day, four times a week, five times a week for eight months, totally free without charging anybody a penny and built my audience up to three or 4,000 readers. And then I asked people to jump from being free readers to paid readers after about eight months, once I knew I had a, a proven concept. And so that whole eight months on Substack was free. I didn't pay at all to use the platform. And most other platforms charge in order to just be a creator and use their platform. Um, so that, that was really attractive to me that it was kind of like this low risk, low investment thing. And they only make money when I make money. So I know they're incentivized to help me make the most money possible, which is like a good, you know, a good shared incentive since they're just taking a cut of my revenue. I, I like that model. It made sense to me. Do you have a, a personal relationship there or did you just sign up? Like a lot of these services have, have these creator programs where there's actually someone managing the community and you have a direct line of communication with that person. Are you in a situation like that? So I just started my newsletter without talking to anybody there. And then I reached out to them and I got a response from Hamish McKenzie, who is the co-founder of Substack. And we sort of had a phone call where I picked his brain about what my idea was. And he kind of helped guided me, you know, guide me towards crystallizing the vision I had for my newsletter and gave me some tips about how to best use the platform. And through him, I built relationships with a lot of the other people on the Substack team. So today, yeah, I do. I mean, I have, I, I, you know, it's not like a coworker colleague relationship, but there are people there, three or four people on staff who I know will answer my emails when I have an issue and, you know, will pick up the phone if I need some advice about something or I'm trying to make a big decision. And that wasn't something I was expecting, but it has certainly made me loyal to the platform in a way where I've wanted to stay on despite the fact, you know, I could make a jump. I mean, I, I could move to somewhere like Ghost and just take my list and go there. And based on the way the Substack fees are, you know, I could save 20 or $30,000 a year by just moving over to Ghost. But then I'm really on my own with, with a, a different kind of support system. I mean, Ghost offers support, but it's not the same kind of, you know, you're, you're not tied. They're not, they're not tied to my fate the same way Substack is. And I like the fact that they're sort of, they're in it with me. So, you know, early on in the days of social, uh, there were all sorts of ways to get data in and out of the social networks. Facebook had RSS feeds, you know, um, you could get to anyone's email address. But, you know, as they get bigger, obviously, they clamp down. Uh, they see that, you know, user data or that user contact information in particular, the email address and mobile phone number, if there is one, as their competitive information. And so I, I had Joe uh, uh, Polizzi on the show uh, recently, he founded the Content Marketing Institute, and he said, you know, when you make, uh, when you build an audience on Clubhouse, you know, you're actually not building your audience, you're building theirs, you know, ditto for YouTube or Facebook or any of these, you know, LinkedIn, and obviously Substack is just sort of scaling now, so I know you can still get your emails out of there if you want. Do you have any concern about that, you know, a sunset for that? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, I think, very good, fair criticisms or concerns about how Substack's going to evolve and what their long-term 
goals are. I mean, they obviously are going to have a certain kind of data from getting people's emails and payment methods and things like that, um, that could help them, you know, target users if they wanted to. But my experience so far has been that line has been drawn pretty clearly between them and the creators. I've never gotten, you know, any kind of pushback on anything I wrote or emails sort of nudging me to go one way or the other, you know, it has always felt like they are just operating in the background and I'm using their platform. Uh, I think there, there are some growing pains with that. Like I'll give you one good example. Uh, You know, I was sitting around on a Sunday afternoon a few weeks back and I started getting a notice that, uh, you know, 10 or 15 people had canceled their subscriptions to my newsletter totally out of the blue and I couldn't understand, I couldn't figure out what was going on. I never get more than like one cancellation a day. I have a really low churn rate. It's like one of my pride things. And uh, so I'm freaking out, trying to figure out what's going on. I start reaching out to some of these readers, just emailing them, hey, I just noticed you unsubscribed. Tell me what's going on. And then they tell me that uh, that they had gotten a notice from Substack that their subscription was going to renew their yearly subscription was coming up on the one year renewal and they didn't want it to renew. So they, you know, they canceled the subscription. And then I got, I asked one of them to forward me the email and I saw the email and it was like, just this very generic, Hey, this is the Substack team. We just want to let you know your subscription to Tangle is renewing in five days. Like you can change your subscription methods here. And it's like a link to their account. And it's basically an invitation to unsubscribe. And I didn't turn this thing on. I, you know, it's just Substack doing their standard due diligence to not sneak charge people. But I wrote to them, you know, pissed off saying like, hey, first of all, don't contact my readers without my permission. I didn't know this email was going out. And second of all, if it's going to go out, I want to be in control of what it says, you know. And so in like 48 hours, they turned around an update where I could edit that email message they sent and sort of customize how far in advance it went out and put like a personal message in there. It says, hey, this is Isaac Saul. You know, we don't want to sneak charge you just letting you know your renewal is coming up. We need your support more than ever. Please stay with us. And it stopped being, you know, kind of the invitation to unsubscribe. And I saw the churn rate just go down immediately once I changed the email message. So, you know, that's something like, they're a growing platform and that kind of stuff is expected. They fixed it really quick. They updated a feature, you know, directly in response to my request. And I come out of that feeling like I have a positive experience with them. Like that, that's a, that was a, a frustrating thing to happen, but in the long term, you know, I lost 10 subscribers and I changed the platform forever in a positive way that I'm going to benefit from. And so, you know, there's some upside to being able to grow with them in that way, even if it, you know, it's a little rough and tumble here and there. Isaac, if someone wants to subscribe to Tangle, how can they do it? You can go to readtangle.com and when you go there, you'll be prompted to drop in your email and you can do that for free and try it if you want. But, you know, if you if you like what you hear, like the idea, you can also throw your weight behind it with a subscription. And if you subscribe, you'll get on top of the Monday through Thursday editions, you'll get Friday editions, which are typically deep dives, personal essays, interviews with people in the political world. It's sort of like that extra premium original content, which people really love. 
Isaac Saul, founder of Tangle, the political newsletter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Ed. For more on how you can earn influence through earned media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.